Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. This episode features a sermon Will Messenger preached at Reservoir Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The sermon is titled, Redemption, the Peculiar Calling of Jesus' Followers. Here's Will Messenger. Good morning. My name is Will Messenger. I'm uh, talking about redemption this morning. And of course, it occurs to me that, well, first of all, this microphone needs to be redeemed a little bit. All right, there we go. Uh, Of course, these uh, tragic events in Lebanon and in France, you know, are reminders of the brokenness of the world that needs redemption. And I'm grateful to, uh, I'm thankful for Dana's uh, prayer about that. And uh, my talk is about redemption too, but I'm I'm not really talking about um, Lebanon or Paris, but it it just reminds me um, the need we have for redemption. Um, I I said my name's Will, I go to this church, and last week, uh, Pastor Steve Watson talked about what it means to be redeemed from a bad situation at work or in life generally, like what happens to Ruth in the book of Ruth. And this week, I'm going to talk about the other side of the same coin, what it's like to help redeem a bad situation, you know, for someone else, like what Boaz does in the book of Ruth. And let me fix this again. And I actually have to start by taking Ruth's perspective. Even though I'm going to talk mostly about Boaz's perspective, I have to start with Ruth's because I know what it's like to need a redeemer at work, to need somebody to help you recover from a bad situation, you know, to cut you a break after making a mistake. And here's what happened. The summer between my years of business school, I got a job with an investment bank called Goldman Sachs in New York. Now, this is a plum job for a business school student. Uh, Goldman is very prestigious, and people who work in investment banks, you know, get permanent jobs in investment banks after graduating make a ton of money. And if you have a summer job at a a bank like that, you're almost guaranteed to get a full-time job after you graduate, unless you really screw up. Now, I didn't come from a family or from an undergraduate college where you ever really think that you'd get this kind of job. And so for me, this was a, a big deal, maybe a big break. I got assigned to a team that was defending a Midwestern-based uh, retail company, a big chain of retail stores, against a hostile takeover attempt from a hedge fund. And it's kind of a complicated transaction, but my assignment was simple. The same hedge fund had tried to take over another company about two years previously. So my manager told me to go, through the, to, go to the Wall Street Journal archives and get every article about that previous attempt and then write up a concise history of what happened last time around. And maybe that would help us plan how to handle things this time around. So I went to the archives and I you know, pulled up, there was like 100 Wall Street Journal articles because it had been in the news you know, every day during this previous attempt. And so I spent all day reading them and trying to follow the, the thread of what was happening and you know, focusing on the word concise, I tried to make a report that gave a big picture, of, a big picture w- without getting bogged down in the details. And you know, so I made a compelling narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end. But maybe I was too concise. I turned my report over to the manager at the end of the day, and when I came into the office, 
the next morning, he was furious. Your report was totally useless, he said. You missed almost everything important that happened. You got all the dates and facts jumbled up. I had to stay here till midnight rewriting it. Did you even do the research I told you to do? You're useless. Oh, I said, I'm, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. I'm really sorry, I'll go back and write it up step by step. No, he said, I've already done that. Just go back to the team room and stay out of the way. I got shuffled off the team a couple days later. This is when I knew I needed a redeemer. Someone who wouldn't see me only as damaged goods. Someone who could see that I was actually a competent, dig, uh, diligent worker who needed a second chance. Fortunately, I got assigned to a new team right away, and I did a great job on this assignment, which was negotiating a sale of $50 million of preferred stock to investors in Boston, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. And this is back when 50 million was a lot of money. <laughs> so after we finished the presentations in Chicago, Jerry, who was the senior partner from Goldman, he said, um, I've actually got a bit of a problem. I'm scheduled for us to, make, to take the CEO of the client company to Los Angeles tomorrow, you know, to finish these presentations. But I kind of also scheduled a presentation in New York with another client. Tell you what, you're ready. You take this client to Los Angeles, you finish up the sale out there and come back to New York. So I did, I took the CEO out, there, CEO out there, we met with the investors, everything worked out great, we closed the deal, Goldman made a big profit, and a few days later, the CEO of that client company called Jerry and raved about what a great job I'd done. So, next October, I'm back at business school, I get a call from Goldman Sachs, I figure, this is it, this is my job offer, you know, my ticket to live in large. But it wasn't. It was a courtesy call, telling me that I would not be receiving an offer from Goldman Sachs, but thanks for my work last summer and best on my job search. I was crushed. So immediately I called Jerry and I said, I can't believe I didn't get a job offer. Can you fix this? Well, he said, you did do a great job for me and I voted in favor of hiring you. But Ben said you did a terrible job for him and he vetoed, your, he vetoed you. Jerry, I said, I know I screwed up on Ben's project, but I learned from my mistake, and I did a great job for you. And remember, I saved your bacon that day you had to be in Los Angeles and New York at the same time. You know, I thought you'd go to, ba to bat for me. And he said, that's not the way it works. You know, one veto, and you don't get the job offer. There's nothing more I can do, sorry. I needed a redeemer. I didn't get one. Now let me be clear, I got exactly what I deserved. You know, I was the one who messed up. But a redeemer doesn't only help you when you deserve better. A redeemer helps you get what's beyond your limited means. A redeemer helps you recover from messing up. And there was no redeemer for me at the end of my summer job at Goldman. And that, my friends, is why I am here in Cambridge today instead of waiting for my chauffeur to bring around the Mercedes at my house in the mansion, at my mansion in the Hamptons. <laughs> now based on my sad story, I'd say that every workplace needs a redeemer, but not many workplaces have one. But what if followers of Jesus could be redeemers in all the places they work? 
I mean, what if there had been a redeemer there? What if Ben had been a redeemer? Maybe he would have said to me, that was a huge screw-up, and you've got to prove to me that you're not just here for some paid summer vacation, but I'll give you a second chance. Or what if someone else on that team had said, you are in big trouble with Ben, but I'll talk to him and see if he'll let me coach you and maybe we can get you back on board. Or what if Jerry had said to me, okay, I'll go and see if I can persuade Ben to change his vote, but you're going to have to come down to New York and apologize to him personally first. I mean, what, what would it be like if every workplace had a redeemer or two to help people get back on track after really messing up? Let's take a look at the book of Ruth as a way to explore these questions. Now, we, we've been reading this book together for the past 10 weeks, and at this stage in the book, a landowner named Boaz has been helping a young woman named Ruth and her mother-in-law named Naomi to be redeemed from destitution and exclusion in the land of Israel. They're destitute because, as women, they can't own land, and their only skill seems to be agriculture, so they have no place to earn a living. And they're excluded because Ruth is from the land of Moab, and Moabites are considered the national enemies of Israel. But Boaz keeps going out of his way to help Ruth and Naomi turn things around. He even welcomes Ruth's bold advances towards marriage. And that is to say, Boaz is wholeheartedly serving as a redeemer for Ruth in a bad situation. Why does Boaz have a heart for Ruth? It started long before he had any romantic interest in her. Way back in chapter 2, when Ruth first met Boaz, she said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? She is aware that people see her primarily as someone to be avoided. But Boaz? Boaz sees the good in Ruth, going all the way back in her life. He replies, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. All along, he's been noticing the good in her, even when no one else seems to. And that brings us to fill in number one on your yellow handout. Up here. The world and all the people in it start off good. The world and all the people in it start off good. And Boaz notices the good in Ruth. And that, in a nutshell, is actually the story of the Bible. When the Bible begins, everything and everybody is good. The Garden of Eden. If you want to be a redeemer for people, you have to see the good in them, no matter how deeply buried it might be. Because ultimately, everyone's roots are planted in the soil of Eden. You have to train your eyes to see that far back. Now, this is not a matter of putting on Pollyanna glasses and pretending that there's nothing wrong with people. It's a matter of seeing deeper, of seeing with God's eyesight to the good roots. Psalm 24 puts it this way, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. God creates everyone in the world and God creates good. Let's apply this to your workplace, the place where you do your daily work. And I'm I'm talking about paid work or unpaid work at home, school, office, factory, store, hotel, wherever you work, whatever it is. What do you see good about your workplace or the people in it, especially the good that might be hidden? 
jot this down in the box beside number one. Now, for instance, to go back to Goldman Sachs, you know, I could see that despite all the temptations for prestige and money and power, the culture there was dedicated to doing what's best for their clients. Time and again, I saw people there put their clients' interests ahead of their own. And they did everything to be trustworthy to clients. So I could write down, serves clients' interests in this box. Okay, jot down a word or two, even if you don't have time to write everything in full. Now moving on, item number two is, the world breaks everyone. The world breaks everyone. This is a quote from Ernest Hemingway's book, A Farewell to Arms. And Steve used it last week when he was talking about uh, what it's like to be someone in need of redemption, like Ruth. But it fits perfectly here, too. I hardly have to tell you that the world is broken, that things have gone wrong, that people do bad stuff. We don't live in the Garden of Eden. I don't have to spend a lot of time on this because you know what I'm talking about. So go ahead and jot down an item or two, some ways your workplace or people in it are messed up. In my Goldman Sachs story, I'm the one who's messed up. I'm the one who's broken. Of course, I've also had jobs where other people are the ones who messed up. Either way, if you want to be a redeemer, you have to see that the world breaks everyone. Everyone is broken. And this is important because I think what we'd rather believe is that the world has two kinds of people, messed up people and unmessed up people. And the key is to avoiding the messed up people and spending your life with the unmessed up people. Now, if necessary, that means get yourself fixed or at least get good at pretending not to be broken so you'll fit in. And at work, it means get rid of the people who make mistakes and bring in people who do everything right. And that's what happened to me. I messed up, they got rid of me. But if you want to be a redeemer, you have to understand that everyone is messed up. Not necessarily equally messed up, but messed up, starting with yourself. And that's why Steve's sermon last week was so moving, if you were, if you were here to hear it, so powerful, because he talked about what it's like to be messed up yet to be redeemed. And that takes us to item number three. God is always working to redeem what's broken. God is always working to redeem what's broken. So God's answer to, is not to get rid of messed up people and focus on the unmessed up ones because there aren't any unmessed up people. And even if there were, God loves messed up people too much to get rid of them. And at last, things, this brings us to today's passage from Ruth that's on this side. It's Ruth 4, chapter 4, verses 2 to 11. Naomi and Ruth have inherited Naomi's deceased husband's land. But because they're women, they can't actually own land. So the land is in legal limbo. Nobody can farm it, and that's why Ruth had to work on Boaz's land in the first place a few chapters earlier. But God who is always working to redeem what's broken. God gave Israel a law to redeem land in this situation. The closest male relative of the deceased husband could marry the widow, and then they would own the land free and clear. And the deceased man's 
widow and children would be cared for. And in fact, the, the second husband would, would raise up children in the name of the first husband who died. The only catch was that the new husband had to treat the wife and any children as if they were his own. He couldn't, for instance, he couldn't marry the woman, claim the land, and then divorce her and get rid of her and her children. To redeem the land, he also had to redeem the people. So, Boaz goes to the ancient equivalent of the Registry of Deeds, namely the town gate, and he gathers enough witnesses for a legal transaction. He finds Naomi's next of kin, whose name is Malon, and he says, if you want that land, go ahead and claim it now, but if not, say so, because I'm next in line after you. Now, Malon has no trouble seeing the good at the roots of the situation. What he sees is the land. Land is good. He'd love to have that. Yeah, he says, I'll definitely pay the legal costs and you know, clean up the title in order to take, to take possession of this land. Of course, Boaz reminds him, your purchase of the land from Naomi also you, requires you to marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. In other words, Boaz brings up the broken aspects of the situation. To get the land, you have to marry Naomi or her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and she is a foreigner from Moab. That could complicate things. This isn't just a simple land purchase anymore. So Malin says, oh, then I can't redeem it because this might endanger my own estate. Ruth and Naomi are broken, according to the customs of the time. And Malin wants to play the game where you try to succeed by only hanging out with the unbroken people. Avoid Ruth, look for some other wife with no baggage. Okay, fair enough, nothing against Malin. If you believe in the slogan, lead, follow, or get out of the way, at least Malin gets out of the way. But being a redeemer, making the world a better place, he leaves that to Boaz. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. And Boaz sees things differently. He knows that Ruth is a Moabite, and that she's tangled up in legal troubles. But for Boaz, the messed up stuff is not a reason to get rid of her. It's a reason to invest in her, literally. So he pays whatever the legal fee is, and he seals the deal with the equivalent of, uh, you know, triplicate and getting it notarized. He says to the witnesses, you are witnesses today. I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property in his hometown. You are all witnesses today. And the people agreed, we are witnesses. Boaz sees the good and the bad in the world, or at least the mix of good and bad in Naomi and Ruth's situation. And it makes him want to redeem them, to invest in the good. It makes Boaz a redeemer, an agent of God. So fill in the blank number three in the with the possibilities for redemption in your workplace. You know, what do you see in your work that could be a sign of God redeeming a bad situation there? You might start with how is God redeeming you at work or through work? Or how might God want to use you to redeem others who are broken? 
Now, I want to go from here on to the end of this talk about how you might be able to be a redeemer wherever you live and work. And that's number four in the fill-in sheet. <laughs> you are called to be a redeemer where you live and work. Invest time, invest space, invest resources. These are three categories that Steve used last week in his talk when he said, give the redemption effort time, space, and resources. He was talking about the redemption effort in yourself, you know, investing in your own redemption, but these apply just as much to investing in redemption for someone else. Invest time, space, and resources. So let's start with invest time. Now, my example here comes from a guy named Don Flo, who owns a string of car dealerships in North Carolina and the Southeast. The story isn't about Don, but about a service advisor and a repair technician who work in one of his dealerships. And here's how Don tells it. The story involved a couple who were traveling to Florida from up north, and their van broke down at night. They called AAA, and we were the only folks open, because part of our value structure is to be open when our customers might need us. The service advisor worked with a technician and found it was the transmission that had to be replaced. Must have been a Chrysler minivan, because they all need their transmissions replaced, I've discovered. Anyway, the couple explained that they had limited vacation time and were trying to get to Florida. And was there something that could be done to avoid a long delay for repair? So the service advisor calls his wife and says, make up some beds tonight in the house because some folks are coming to stay with us for the night. And then she cooked them dinner and they spent the night there and the technician stayed in the shop until about 2.30 in the morning to complete the repair. At 7 a.m., they were back on the road. Don continues, I didn't know anything about this until I received a letter from those people, and it said, it's possible we went into a time warp and landed in heaven. Here's what happened, and they told the story. If everybody's like this, we are moving here, and so is our whole town. <laughs> Don says, obviously, back at the dealership, you know, we celebrated what these guys had done. And when we interviewed the service manager, he said, well, isn't that how you would treat a valued friend? The service advisor and his wife and the technician invested one night in redeeming the vacation of a family that just happened to be passing through their town. I mean, that's a lot to invest in a stranger, really, to treat them as a valued friend. And it did turn around this messed up situation and get the family back on their vacation to Florida. I also wonder... What did it do to the atmosphere of this dealership? I mean, if a dealership, if people in a workplace treat strangers that well, you know, what, how, must, how must they treat one another? That must be a great place to work. And the question I have for you is, is there anything you could be part of redeeming where you work if you invested time? Jot that in box 4A. Could God be calling you to invest time to redeem some situation or person where you work? Right below that is uh, for space 4B, and that's for invest space. Now, I have a story about this where I'm the redeemer, and I'm a little embarrassed to tell this story because, you know, it kind of makes me look pretty good. At least I hope it makes me look pretty good. <laughs> uh, but I have to admit, this is, like, this is the one peak moment 
of me trying to do the right thing at work. You know, if I'm ever asked to speak here again, you might just go get a cup of coffee because after this it's all B material. Um, I was a manager at the consulting firm named, uh, called McKinsey, and we were doing a cost-cutting study for an electric company. And my, my job was to lead a team of five employees from the electric company to figure out how to cut costs in administration and real estate. And then I had three other colleagues from McKinsey, each of them leading a team of five people from the client company to figure out cost-cutting in power generation, you know, transmission lines, trucks, street lights, whatever. There was a senior partner and a junior partner uh, leading the whole team. And so to start off, the senior partner flew in from Washington for a kickoff meeting with all 25 of us. And he started giving this rousing talk about how important this, this uh, engagement was gonna be, keeping the company afloat, reliability of the electrical system, saving money for customers. And just as he was hitting his stride, one of the people on my team raised his hand. Let's call him Ed. Excuse me, Ed said, but before you get into how we're gonna do this cost-cutting analysis, I think we should discuss whether this whole project is even a good idea. You know, I, I have some articles here, some articles here from The Economist that really question whether consulting firms like McKinsey actually add long-term value to their clients. My mouth dropped. <laughs> I figured the senior partner would bust the gut right on the spot, but he was so experienced, so good, that he just said something, you know, humble and humorous, you know, and got back on track and delivered this rousing talk. You know, no harm done. But right after the meeting, the junior partner took me aside. Get rid of Ed. For once in my life, I thought I had a pretty clear idea of what Jesus would do. Right? I figured Jesus would try to redeem Ed, not get rid of him. Plus, I remembered back a couple years ago when I needed a redeemer at Goldman. I knew that if Ed got taken off the team, it would seriously damage his career prospects at the electric company. And I had no time to think. So I just blurted out, what Ed did was beyond stupid, but I think he could make a big contribution to this team. Give me two weeks to work with him, and if he's not on board then, then I'll get him removed. His junior partner looked at me. Okay, he said two weeks, but if he does anything like that again, it's on your head. So I went to my office and I said a brilliant little prayer like, uh, God, uh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and then I went to Ed's office. Ed, I said, what the heck did you think you were doing in there? You know, I was yelling at him. Are you trying to get us both fired? I was trying to do the drill sergeant routine, you know, like that guy in stripes. Next time you want to question the senior partner's direction, you come talk to me first, and I'll help you find the right time and the right place. Don't ever do anything that boneheaded again. Now, I, I put this in the category of investing space because I was trying to, to create a space on this team for Ed to get a second chance. You know, creating a place in our little, little team where you could get back on board if you fell off the train. I spent hours with Ed over the next two weeks, um, more hours over the next six months. So I guess this is about investing time, too. And you know what? It worked. Ed did a great job. 
He became a big contributor to the team. In fact, at the end of the assignment, when the senior partner came back for the celebration dinner, he singled out Ed and one other client team member as the biggest contributors to the project's success. <laughs> so go to box 4B on your handout, and my question is, how could you invest space to redeem a situation or person that's going off track where you work? Could God be calling you to take a little risk in order to make a big difference in someone's life? You know, can you find space where you work to become a redeemer? Now, the last one for C is invest resources. And this story I just happened to me just a couple of weeks ago. I was at a, I go to a breakfast uh, once every month for men, and it's about faith, about integrating faith and work. And next to me, this a guy sat down next to me, and I'd never seen him before. So I said, oh, welcome, my name's Will, are you new here? And he said, I am new here. Uh, uh, I got out of prison after 27 years on Friday, and really, I'm new to everything. Like, people have phones with them. Like he'd never seen a cell phone. So I'm trying to figure everything out, he said. And it turned out his story was, you know, he, I don't know what he did, but it must have been bad. Uh, and he'd, he was, he'd been in prison for three years when he decided he should, maybe he should try to follow Jesus because it couldn't be worse than whatever else he was following before. And so he came in contact with the volunteer chaplain. And the chaplain said to him, maybe you should think about applying to work in the upholstery shop that's part of the prison. They actually have a, a company there that does reupholstery inside the prison. So for 24 years, this guy had been learning the art of reupholstering furniture and, and then also the art of management because he became the shop super, supervisor for the upholstery shop. He said to me, I love reupholstery because it's redeeming furniture, just like God redeemed me. I had a messed up childhood and I was a very messed up young man. And I'm, I'm actually grateful for 27 years in prison because that's what saved my life. Wow. Okay, that's him investing time in his own redemption. The invest resources part comes from the guy sitting on the other side of him. And he's, the, he's that volunteer prison chaplain. And now he's raising investors to put up money to start an upholstery business that the ex-convict is going to run. Now, it's a for-profit business, so the investors expect a financial return. But at the same time, they're investing resources, I mean money, in human redemption. They know how messed up this guy was, that he got sentenced to 27 years in prison, but they also see how good he is at upholstery and how good he is at management. And they are ready to invest in redemption. Probably there's no existing business that would hire him, so their investment might be the only way to bring redemption in this situation. Now that's pretty dramatic, but what about you? What resources could you invest in redeeming situations or people where you work? Put that in box 4C. I mean, if there's, an, if there's a redemption in upholstery, there must be redemption where you work too. Okay, these are my three examples. But all this assumes that you are interested in being a redeemer. Why would you want to do that? Why take that risk? Why put your heart out there where you know that if anything was messed up before, it could get messed up again? You know, even after all your space, 
time and resources. Why bother? One reason is that maybe you want to invest in redeeming others because you remember when you needed redemption yourself, like me at Goldman. Maybe you remember how much you needed someone to invest in you after you messed up, and you're willing to do that for someone else now. Another reason could be that you see people as God sees people, like I was saying earlier. You see what's messed up, but beneath that, way down deep, you see the goodness that could be restored. If God gives you the ability to see people like that, maybe that makes you want to be a redeemer. But maybe the best reason is that Jesus was a redeemer, the redeemer. Other religious leaders have taught wisdom, led spiritual revivals, worked for peace, proclaimed justice, fought poverty, lived for holy lives, laid down their life for someone else. But Jesus is the one whose death and God raising him to life again bears the power of redemption to everyone who wants it. And if you connect with Jesus, if you let his love work its way, its wonders in you, then you actually can become a redeemer. The one peculiarly unique thing about following Jesus is that his specialty is redeeming people. That's why I think it would be great if the one thing that people thought of when they thought about followers of Jesus is redeemers. Oh yeah, followers of Jesus, those are the people who go in for redemption. If you mess up at work, if you need help, try to find a follower of Jesus. Those people know how to turn things around. They will care about you even when everyone else wants to avoid you because you're damaged goods. Followers of Jesus, redemption. Now, I don't think that's necessarily what people think of right now when they hear the word Christian or follower of Jesus. So there's a lot of redemption needed, a lot of work to do. To begin with, Followers of Jesus need redemption ourselves. We are the broken people. You know, even just to be a follower of Jesus takes redemption, in my experience. And that brings us to this first little passage from the Gospel of Matthew. That's the, the next set of passages on that yellow sheet. And this is Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again, sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. So the action in this is, the kingdom of heaven is that, is that possibility of redemption. And so the person who finds it trades everything in order to be redeemed. It's like Ruth. He knows he needs to be redeemed, and the kingdom of heaven is the redemption. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're always looking for a way to receive this redemption like finding the buried treasure, like Ruth. The next passage is the opposite side. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. All right, so now, in the first one, the kingdom of heaven was the treasure. Now the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for choice pearls. And the choice pearls are people. And we discovered a pearl of great value. He sold everything he owned and bought it. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're always on the lookout, like the kingdom of God, to help others. Like they're a pearl of great value 
when the rest of the world just sees damaged goods. These two sides of the coin, these, par these parables are right next to each other in the Gospel of Matthew. These two sides of the coin are the yang and the yin of Jesus. Allowing yourself to be redeemed, like Ruth. Investing in redeeming others, like Boaz. And trusting Jesus to make it all possible. Would you pray with me? Dear God, I'm thankful for these stories of redemption because I'm aware of my need uh, for redemption. And I, and I thank you for the people who have invested in me. And I ask by your grace uh, for, for the possibility of being a redeemer for somebody else, you know, for myself and any, anyone else in this room who, who says, yeah, I'd like to be a redeemer. I, I just thank you for that possibility. And I ask you to show us don't let this be a mystery, but sh show us, you know, where you're calling us to act as a redeemer for someone else and give us the power to do it, even though we lack, the, I feel like I lack the power on my own, but I want to trust you to, to make it happen. And I also, just because of this week, I do want to ask you to bring your redeeming power to the, the violence and the messed up, the broken stuff in our world, you know, especially um, terrorism and, and violence. I, I just, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I, I pray that you'd bring redemption to the, the situations in, in Paris and in Lebanon, to the people who've lost loved ones, the people who are frightened, to all of us really who are shattered. I just pray, bring your redeeming power. In Jesus' name. That was Will Messenger preaching at Reservoir Church in Cambridge, Massachusetts. For more information, visit our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at TheoWorkProject.